welcome to the 2018 6th Annual Kessler Neurotrauma Conference, sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. This conference presents an in-depth look at the art of delivering individualized rehabilitation services to this diverse patient population. Physicians, clinicians, and research scientists will provide insight into a range of topics, from mobility and fatigue to intimacy and sexuality to employment and empowerment, and will offer innovative evidence-based strategies to effectively support both the patient and the caregiver. This podcast was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, December 7, 2018, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. In this lecture podcast, Dr. Ekaterina Dobokova of Kessler Foundation presents New Developments in Treating Fatigue Following TBI. Dr. Dobrikova is a senior research scientist for neuropsychology and neuroscience at Kessler Foundation. For more information about Dr. Dobrikova, click on her bio link within the description of this podcast. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. Our speaker for 2.30 is Ekaterina Dobrikova. So Dr. Dobrikova is a research scientist at the Kessler Foundation. Her topic is new developments in treating fatigue following TBI. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, everyone. So today I will talk to you about some of my research. And um, um, so my research includes uh, work um, using functional magnetic resonance imaging. So um, it is uh, quite basic, but I'm going to try and relate it to um, uh, practice and rehabilitation uh, in um, large strokes, basically. Okay, so we will talk about um, new developments in treating t uh, fatigue following traumatic brain injury. So um, let me just start by uh, explaining what is meant by fatigue. And when I'm talking about fatigue, I'm mostly talking about cognitive fatigue. And in their seminal paper, Chaduri and Bihan, uh, back in 2000, defined fatigue as difficulty in initiating and sustaining voluntary mental tasks. So fatigue occurs in a lot of clinical populations. Individuals with multiple sclerosis experience uh, fatigue, as well as uh, individuals who go through cancer treatment. And also there is chronic fatigue syndrome, which is basically de uh, defined by uh, persistent fatigue that does not go away. And also individuals who uh, have stroke and Parkinson's disease also experience fatigue. Um, in terms of uh, traumatic brain injury, up to 75% of individuals with traumatic brain injury report experiencing fatigue. So the common symptoms of fatigue and consequences, of course, include exhaustion and overall lack of energy. And also, uh, individuals who have fatigue say that it is not, uh, sleep does not really help them. So, uh, when you and I are fatigued, we go to sleep and we usually uh, wake up rested. However, um, people who have fatigue um, persistently and a um, neurological uh, diagnosis, uh, including individuals with traumatic brain injury, say that sleep does not really uh, help them. Help them. 
So of course fatigue negatively affects quality of life. Uh, it has also been shown to negatively affect rehabilitation gains and it has been shown to be associated with disability. So um, here's how patients describe fatigue and this is a slide that um, I adapted from uh, Marcia Finlayson who is an occupational therapist in Queen's University of Canada. Um, so uh, people uh, say the following, I feel like my world is shrinking, I have only so much energy during the day. The enjoyable things, do no, uh, things go to the bottom of the list. After the chores, I don't have any more energy, it's discouraging. It's debilitating, frustrating, and scary. It's a constant heaviness, like walking in cement. It is constant tiredness, I wake up tired, I go to bed tired, I'm tired all the time. So fatigue being so common, of course, the next question is, how do we measure it? And um, fatigue is mostly measured by self-report. So there are a lot of uh, measures, and most of the measures are questionnaires. And um, even these questionnaires can be subdivided onto uh, categories. So there are measures that measure trait fatigue. And um, these are basically uh, paper and pencil questionnaires, one of the most common ones uh, used in research and um, that we um, use at Castle Foundation very often uh, in fatigue research is the fatigue severity scale. So um, that's basically a questionnaire where that asks um, participants to rate certain state statements on a scale from one to seven and people have to think back uh, how, for example, their motivation or physical activities were impacted by fatigue during the uh, last week. Also, there is a modified fatigue impact scale. Uh, so this is a measure that asks people to think back to um, the past four weeks, so um, way back. Um, and um, that questionnaire has subscales that um, asks people uh, to identify statements about um, how fatigue uh, impacted cognitive activities, how fatigue impacted physical activities, uh, and then there is also a subscale that evaluates psychosocial um, uh, domains. And also there is a state fatigue measure. So basically um, the visual analog uh, scale of fatigue is, is uh, simply uh, a rating scale that can vary from, let's say from one to seven, zero to 10, or even zero to 100. But what's interesting about um, and differentiates it from the other fatigue measures, the trait fatigue uh, measures, is that the visual analog scale usually asks how a person or the degree uh, to which a person is fatigued in the current moment. Okay, so um, we know how we measure it, how do we treat fatigue? So far, researchers can't agree on an effective behavioral treatment, but um, medical doctors do prescribe medication off-label um, to treat fatigue. And these medications fall in the category of dopamine agonists. So th these types of medication, they increase the amount of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the brain. And um, there, there are 
uh, a, quite a lot of um, research studies, uh, clinical trials, and some of them are double-blind randomized clinical trials uh, that showed um, these types of medication, the dopamine agonists, being effective in treating fatigue in cancer patients, um, in patients with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, Parkinson's disease, um, and traumatic brain injury. So, okay, we know that these types of medications have been shown to help individuals with traumatic brain injury. So does this mean that there is an imbalance of dopamine um, after traumatic brain injury? Bales and others recently showed that indeed there might be an imbalance after TBI, specifically uh, during the acute stage of traumatic brain injury. Um, there is some evidence suggesting that um, there is increased dopamine tone in the brain. So there is more dopamine um, um, in the brain after, uh, during the acute stage of the TBI. However, during the chronic stage of traumatic brain injury, there seems to be um, reduced levels of uh, dopamine in the brain. Okay, so uh, dopamine... Um, a neurotransmitter, uh, we also know how um, it is synthesized and the, the brain pathway um, uh, that this uh, neurotransmitter goes through. So basically the neurotransmitter dopamine is synthesized in the ventral tegmental area that um, you can see here at, um, at the bottom of, in the, in the, basically in the brainstem. Uh, it is also uh, synthesized in the substantia nigra pars compacta, another subcortical region. And then it projects to the striatum uh, or nucleus accumbens, which is basically a ventral striatum. And after that, it goes to cortical, uh, cortical areas. And uh, as indicated on the slide, this is often called a dopamine pathway or a reward pathway. So we know that uh, the um, medication, the dopamine agonists, um, influences this pathway. But the question is whether we can actually try and influence this pathway without the medication. Because of course medication has side effects and um, there, are, there can be also issues with uh, adherence. Okay, so um, also on a, a global level and some there's some neuroimaging uh, evidence suggesting that this dopamine or reward pathway is actually impaired um, in uh, a variety of clinical populations um, in, in, the, in the individuals who uh, experience fatigue. So um, our brain is an interconnected entity. So this graph basically shows that uh, the uh, striatum uh, labeled as SN here um, it's connected with various areas of the prefrontal cortex, but um, the dopamine and reward pathway um, is particularly centered on the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens, which is the ventral portion of the striatum. So um, as the title of the pathway alludes to, uh, it is involved in uh, processing um, rewarding outcomes, but also it's involved in learning and outcome anticipation. So, for example, um, we learn through experience that reckless driving is likely to uh, result in getting a ticket. Uh, and we also know that we need to perform an action of coming on time to a doctor's appointment in order to be seen by a doctor and then get our results. So, uh, this pairing of action-outcome association is basically processed um, in this pathway.
Also, uh, the, the reward pathway is involved in outcome anticipation, and the best example is uh, gambling. That's the most salient example. So if you uh, go to Atlantic City um, and you play a roulette, you bet on red, and you have this anticipatory feeling, um, you're waiting for the outcome, and then you, if you win, you have um, an exciting feeling of winning money. So again, all these uh, processes are dependent on uh, dopamine. And um, basically, these uh, mechanisms were discovered uh, originally in uh, animal research. Um, research with monkeys determined that dopamine neurons are sensitive to the presentation of rewards and punishments. So uh, in a typical setting, a monkey has to learn to associate a specific button press with an outcome. And usually it's a food outcome. Let's say in this case, it's a banana. So when a monkey press a left, uh, presses a left button um, and receives a banana, we see an increase of uh, dopamine, uh, dopamine neurons. Um, here, and um, there is um, there is increase of neuronal firing and um, um, release of dopamine. However, when a monkey is expecting an outcome, but this outcome is not presented to um, to the animal, uh, so no reward, no banana, uh, then the dopamine neurons uh, don't fire, and uh, there is no release of uh, dopamine. So human neuroimaging findings uh, support uh, that this is the uh, uh, basically that this is the mechanism. Um, there is a lot of research uh, using functional MRI, indicating that the reward pathway is sensitive to the presentation of um, uh, rewards and punishments. Studies that use positron emission tomography. Um, indicate that indeed there is dopamine release uh, in humans during reward presentation. And uh, also uh, studies that combine pharmacology and functional neuroimaging show that um, medications, the dopamine agonist medications that reduce fatigue also um, increase reward-seeking behavior and um, enhance the activation of the reward pathway. Okay, so to summarize what we know so far, we know that up to 75% of individuals with TBI experience fatigue. And also we know that there is a dopamine imbalance such that during the acute stages of TBI, there is an increase in dopamine tone, but during the chronic stage of TBI, um, there are reduced levels of dopamine. And we also know that um, reward presentation leads to uh, dopamine increase in the brain and activates the reward pathway. So the question that uh, I wanted to um, answer in my research is whether we can reduce fatigue through the use of rewards in individuals with traumatic brain injury who report fatigue. So to answer this question, we, reported, uh, we uh, recruited uh, 21 individuals with traumatic brain injury and uh, 24 healthy individuals. There were no differences in age, education, or gender. And our um, uh, Participants with traumatic brain injury were, on average, uh, at least uh, 10 years post-injury. And the severity uh, differed. We had one person with mild traumatic brain injury, nine with moderate, and um, 11 persons with uh, severe TBI. 
So during the experiment, participant, participants performed a card guessing task. This is a um, task that has been validated in uh, healthy individuals and in pediatric populations. And basically it stimulates goal achievement. So the goal during the task, think back to the roulette example, um, is the, the, the goal is basically to win a bonus, monetary bonus. So uh, at the beginning of the experiment, participants were told that they are endowed with um, money. Um, basically, they were given $50, and they were told that they can win a bonus um, during the experiment. So participants were uh, presented with two conditions, so the reward condition during which they were able to gamble and uh, had to try and win a bonus, and then during the control condition, uh, they were not presented with this opportunity. And I will talk more about what participants were presented with at each stage of the task. Um, more importantly, what we did was we also administered a visual analog scale of fatigue, uh, the one that measures fatigue in the current moment, because we wanted to know whether um, trying to achieve a goal of winning money in this case will reduce uh, participants' fatigue uh, versus uh, the scenario where they don't have a goal. And of course, at the end of the experiment, we explained and debriefed everyone saying that um, the bonus was actually fixed uh, due to uh, ethical requirements of the study. Okay, so here's what participants were presented with during the reward condition of the card task. First, participants saw a question mark and that indicated to them that they had to guess whether a number on the card is higher or lower than five. Um, so if participants guessed correctly, uh, they were present with a green check mark indicating that they just won a dollar. And, um, and if uh, they uh, saw an X mark, that indicated to them that they just uh, lost 50 cents. So participants uh, during uh, the reward condition were simply presented with a number and they had to indicate whether the number was higher or lower than five and then they were shown um, a feedback screen. So this condition uh, served two purposes. So first we wanted to control for the motor response uh, between the two conditions. So both conditions required a button press. Uh, and that way, if we see greater activation, for example, during the reward condition, we know that this activation is due to uh, processing rewarding outcome ver and not the motor response. And also we wanted to equate uh, the um, visual stimuli. So in both conditions we have uh, first a cue being presented and then a feedback screen being presented. Uh, so the only difference between the conditions um, is this anticipatory and um, goal attainment component. Okay, and so after each condition, uh, we also presented participants with a visual analog scale where they had to say how mentally fatigued they are uh, in the current moment. So basically they were presented with um, the, uh, a scale that uh, ranged from zero to 10 um, and the cursor was centered in the middle and they had to move the cursor closer to zero if uh, their levels of fatigue were low and uh, they had to move the cursor closer to number 10 if their levels of fatigue were high. Um, of course, we administered uh, trade fatigue questionnaires, the fatigue severity scale that was actually used to screen TBI participants into the study, and the modified fatigue impact scale. 
We also administered a scale uh, that's called BIS-BAS. Um, so BIS stands for the behavioral inhibition scale and BAS stands for the behavioral activation scale. BIS um, evaluates to what degree a participant or a person rather um, one would wants to move away from goals, so um, the uh, aversive behavior and to a degree a person doesn't want to see punishing outcomes. And BAS, uh, the behavioral activation scale, looks um, and evaluates to a degree someone wants to move towards goal, goals. So basically, the degree, um, how, how driven a person is and how, uh, how the person wants to seek rewards. And also, um, there was a post-task questionnaire where we asked participants about their feelings they experienced during uh, seeing a reward and winning money and um, how they felt when they uh, lost money. Okay, so uh, now I will show you some results. On the questionnaires, on the post-task questionnaire, most of our participants said that correctly guessing a card was rewarding and pleasant, while incorrectly guessing the card um, was upsetting to them. So basically our manipulation uh, worked. Um, and also we observed a negative association between trade fatigue and uh, motivational tendencies. So participants who scored high on the fatigue severity scale and the modified fatigue impact scale um, also sc scored uh, lower um, on the uh, best subscale. So if fatigue is high, uh, a person is not... Um, is, is not goal-driven or is not really reward-seeking. And um, in terms of the fatigue questionnaires, of course, individuals with TBI uh, reported greater uh, fatigue compared to our, our uh, healthy control uh, participants. So what about the on-task fatigue results? So that's the visual analog scale. So here, what we observed was that reward reduced fatigue in individuals with TBI. So um, specifically, we observed a group by condition interaction, such as that um, um, there was a fatigue reduction after the reward condition in individuals with traumatic brain injury. So if you focus on the green bar, you can see that it is significantly lower uh, compared to the uh, red bar. Um, we observed uh, be also between group differences after the no reward condition. So individuals with traumatic brain injury imported higher levels of fatigue after the no reward condition compared to healthy controls. And healthy controls in general uh, reported low levels of fatigue regardless of the condition. What is interesting is that there were also no group differences in reward uh, in fatigue, um, rather, after the reward condition. So traumatic brain injury participants reported low levels of fatigue after the reward condition, and they were close to levels of fatigue of healthy control participants. Okay, so um, in terms of the uh, fMRI results, we specifically looked at the reward pathway activation, uh, comparing uh, activation in uh, TBI participants and healthy control participants. And we looked at the activation during outcome presentation of the reward and the no reward condition. So when participants were presented with um, a feedback screen uh, where they during the time period where they found out whether they won a dollar or lost 50 cents, and that was compared to um, just the feedback screen of the no reward condition. So uh, here we observed greater uh, activation of the reward pathway uh, after the reward uh, condition, 
I, mean, I apologize, during the reward condition versus the no reward conditions in both groups, so both in healthy control and traumatic brain injury uh, participants. Okay, so to summarize, uh, we observed reward pathway activation in individuals with traumatic brain injury and healthy controlled participants, but only in individuals with, with traumatic brain injury, this was associated with reduced levels of uh, fatigue during the reward condition. And um, these findings are actually uh, replicated because we show similar findings in individuals with multiple sclerosis who also report high levels of fatigue. So uh, again, we observed activation of the uh, striatum and regions of the reward pathway. Um, and in our uh, MS and healthy control sample, both groups reported lower levels of fatigue um, after the reward condition. So these findings might suggest the potential non-pharmacological manipulation of the reward pathway to reduce fatigue. So it seems that engaging, engaging in a motivating task uh, can lead to fatigue reduction regardless of the clinical population. So of course, the obvious uh, limitations of the study um, is that it's um, ecological validity uh, can be a bit better. Uh, unfortunately, monetary rewards is not something that uh, we often experience during our daily life. Um, we only wish there was winning a lottery every day, but, um, and of course, monetary rewards is not something we encounter during rehabilitation. So how is this relevant to rehabilitation? Um, and what these findings might mean for rehabilitation? Well, there are different types of, uh, of rewards. There are extrinsic rewards and there are intrinsic rewards. And the extrinsic rewards, I already touched upon them. It's food rewards usually used in animal research um, and also in uh, human basic research. Uh, of, course, of course, there are monetary rewards, and those rewards are very objective, and they can be measured. So um, we know that a $1 reward is um, is less than $5. So money and food are very salient motivators for most people. However, there are also intrinsic rewards. And those um, rewards include praise and performance-related feedback. Uh, these types of rewards are more subjective compared to extrinsic rewards. So uh, someone might take praise really too hard, while other people might not care as much about it. So, uh, it's, uh, it's more tricky, but these types of rewards are more common um, during rehabilitation and daily life. Um, the important thing is that they these types of rewards engage the same uh, brain region, so the same neural network. Um, and um, as I mentioned, these are the rewards that we usually encounter and give during rehabilitation. So motor, during motor rehabilitation, feedback and instructions uh, are required before an action becomes automatic. Feedback uh, or, um, yeah, performance-related feedback is basically an important uh, component of cognitive training. So uh, in terms of implications, it's all about outcome value and how can we deliver feedback or those intrinsic rewards so that an activity is uh, less fatiguing. And um, 
this is uh, something that uh, Grant and Ponsford touched upon in their recent paper, saying that uh, we need to try and make rehabilitation as much patient-centered as uh, possible. And when it is patient-centered, uh, patients are able to derive most benefit. And patients' performance improves more on, uh, when, when they are able to reach outcomes that they set for themselves uh, compared to outcomes that are being set by uh, therapists. So um, a, an interesting example uh, that emphasizes how it's all about uh, value, uh, in, a re in a study by Malhotra and others with uh, stroke patients, uh, they showed that um, during a cancellation task, uh, patients with stroke were able to cancel or recognize more um, targets uh, when uh, there was a reward associated with task performance versus on a standard um, uh, cancellation task. And also what these findings uh, that I just presented to you might, uh, might mean is that maybe it's okay to get to, to give negative feedback because it's the negative feedback that drives the dopamine response and makes positive feedback more um, um, more salient and motivating and also less predictable. And also uh, recently um, um, occupational therapy, uh, um, research within the occupational therapy uh, suggests that error-based learning um, improves self-regulation and uh, skill transfer after training. So um, also uh, current research uh, that I just presented might provide a theory and neural mechanisms for why goal setting works. In their recent uh, uh, review paper and meta-analysis, Livek and others showed that goal setting is beneficial for self-efficacy and feeling of personal control. And uh, also uh, individuals report um, better uh, self, uh, emotional status and health related quality of life. So um, going back to fatigue, uh, there is uh, one fatigue self-management program for teleconference delivery. So that is a, a program that was developed by Marcia Finlayson from the Queen's University in Canada. And it's an adaptation of uh, um, a program called Managing Fatigue where um, uh, individuals had to gather in groups. Uh, so this is uh, Marcia Finlayson, she adapted that to be a teleconference delivery program. And basically it's a six-week six group-based intervention that involves uh, weekly 70-minute teleconference calls facilitated by a licensed occupational therapist that's who is trained on the intervention. And um, this intervention basically teaches fatigue management strat strategies and utilizes goal setting during final intervention sessions. Uh, they showed that uh, this intervention is su uh, successful at reducing fatigue and also leads to improved fatigue management and training on uh, setting realistic goals. So this intervention has been uh, administered in um, multiple sclerosis, but uh, for, uh, for the future directions in fatigue research uh, here at Kessler Foundation, we want to try and implement the um, functional magnetic resonance imaging before and after the fatigue self-management program in individuals with traumatic brain injury and multiple sclerosis, and also examine how effort impacts fatigue um, and uh, how we value outcomes uh, during goal attainment, again, both uh, in traumatic brain injury and multiple sclerosis.
Okay, and on that note, I um, would like to finish the presentation and thank everyone who um, helped with the research. Um, in your uh, handouts or the presentation that's available online, there is also a bibliography uh, where you can pull the uh, articles that you're specifically interested in. Thank you. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.